0: Welcome to the Center of Research Excellence in Cerebral Palsy podcast. In this episode, we hear about how various technologies can be used in a range of clinical and research applications. This episode was recorded at the Royal Children's Hospital and features a number of speakers beginning with Dr. Morgan Sandro. Morgan is a mechanical engineer focusing on gait analysis, and his work includes creating models of the human body and developing new imaging techniques to validate them. Morgan left MCRI for his native France just after we recorded this episode. Morgan starts us off with a quick history
1: lesson. Let's start about uh, a little bit of historical perspective of movement analysis. Uh, movement analysis is, is quite old, in fact. It's uh, older. It's almost as old as photography, and it's older than cinematography. Uh, the Lumiere brothers performed the first cinematographic projection in uh, in a theater in Paris. In 1895. But in fact, uh, the, the chronometric uh, chronomatography uh, 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 photography was established by a scientist uh, about 15 years earlier. It's uh, Etienne Jules that invented this uh, chrom- uh, chronomatography gun in order to capture the movement of animals in their natural habitats. So uh, Etienne Jules Marais has established. A, a physiology station in uh, in Paris and was interested in a range of movement for example the movement of air flows around a uh, static object or as i said before the movement of animals in their natural environment so in this case that's the landing of a of a pelican on a on a lake and i'm I'm not sure why i did this because i haven't uh, i can't remember uh, I've been seeing a, a pelican on the lake in, uh, in France, so who knows. Um, you have to remember that that was the time also of the, the rebirth of the Olympic Games. And so Etienne-Jules Mare was also interested in uh, sports movement analysis. And in this case, this is the, the type of picture he was making on pole vaulting jump.
0: Morgan and the other speakers do refer to their slides now and then, but you can still follow along easily enough. If you'd like to see the slides, you can download them from our website at crecp.org.au. Anyway, back to Morgan.
1: That was, uh, unfortunately, also the time of the lead-up to the, the First World War, and so the, the French Army was interested in getting the soldiers to uh, march faster. And, and so I think uh, Etienne uh performed the first video-based gate analysis, and for that he equipped soldiers with a, a black uniform, with uh, white paint, on the uniform so that it could calculate the, the, the joint angles uh, when the soldiers were marching as, as fast as possible, I guess. So we are clearly not doing these kind of things in the, in the gate lab uh, nowadays. And we're also are using a different type of technology than just uh, uh, photography or chronophotography. Uh, we use these uh, specific cameras. These cameras have a red strobe or infrared strobe that send lights to uh, markers uh, that have uh, reflective tape on them. The markers reflect the the light back to the camera, and because there are uh, several cameras looking at the same marker at the same time, we can uh, calculate the position of the marker in space by triangulation. So we end up uh, seeing uh, a lot of markers that we we attach to the, the subject's limb, and we then apply A biomechanical model that will uh, fit where we think the skeleton is with respect to the markers. Once we know where the skeleton is, then we can calculate the movement of the different joints of the body. But that's not it, because we also have uh, force plates embedded in the floor. That means that we can uh, capture the force that the subject applied to the ground when he's walking. And since we know the force the subject applied to the ground, then we can calculate the torque or the net moment that is required uh, at the joints so that the subjects stay upright and move forward. Then we can calculate another set of curves, the kinetics curve in this case, which display again the moment at the hip, the knee, the ankle, and then the power at the different joints. So this is the, the, the raw material that we use in the gait lab. We use these curves in order to uh, diagnose what are the main impairments uh, of, of walking for the subjects. and and establish the best possible treatment plan. We also use these curves to compare uh, the the walking pattern of the subject before and after an an intervention so that we can quantify if we do good or not so good. Uh, We we can also use this curve to monitor uh, the progress of of an impairment on the walking pattern uh, of the subjects.
0: There are, of course, known limits on this method of gait
1: analysis. The first one is is whether we've got enough enough information. Uh, We've got the markers, then we have the the movement of the skeleton, but there are key data that we can't access through uh, conventional gait analysis. And this key key data is the muscle forces uh, during the the walking and then how much uh, contact forces there is in the joint. So that's very important if we want to... uh, know a little bit more about uh, the the force going through the joints and and potentially relate this to to pain and and, and degenerative diseases. And so uh, the problem is to go to this kind of uh, experiment where we have uh, access to muscle force and joint contact forces, we need to fuse medical imaging with conventional analysis.
0: And that's something we'll hear a lot more about throughout this episode. Next up, we hear from Dr. Elise Passmore, a senior biomedical engineer at the Royal Children's Hospital. Elise works on the fusion of new medical imaging technologies with 3D motion analysis to develop computational models of the musculoskeletal system. So, what does that mean?
2: Essentially, it's a computer model of the bones and the muscles. And it allows us to look at the force produced by the muscles and also uh, the forces that are acting on the joints during walking. So today I'm going to talk to you about how we're able to create these personalized musculoskeletal models uh, by using the EOS imaging system that we have here at the Royal Children's Hospital. So the EOS imaging system is a low-dose biplane X-ray system.
0: And it kind of looks like the X-ray scanner at airport security. You just step in and stand on the yellow dot. Now
2: it works um, by taking two X-ray images at the same time. So one is from the front and one is from the side. Now what separates this from conventional uh, X-rays is what we're then able to do with these two X-ray images. So, if we have these two x ray images, it allows us to fit what we call 3D shape models of the bones to the outlines of those x ray images. And when we do it in both views at the same time, it allows us to get the 3D shape of these bones. Now, this is particularly important for us because a lot of the children we see, their bone shape may be altered, especially. Uh, in pathologies such as cerebral palsy. And so this allows us to make uh, measurements such as femoral neck antiversion and tibial torsion. But what's really great for us in the gait lab is something else that it provides. If we take these X-ray images with the skin markers on that we use during gait analysis, we can actually also get the position of these bones relative to those skin markers that we're using to track movement. So this system is able to provide us with those two key pieces of information, both the shape of the bones and their position relative to the skin markers. So as with any new technology, um, it has both its pros and cons. So one beneficial part is that it's got quite low ionizing radiation which is equivalent to only eight days of uh, radiation you'd get from walking around. To give this a bit of context, that's 10 times less than a standard pelvic X-ray or 100 times less than a CT scan that we would use to look at the shape of the bones in the legs. However, currently availability of such a system is quite limited because it's quite expensive to buy and to use. But we're very lucky here at the Royal Children's Hospital to have one of these systems. Um, It also has the advantage that it has quite a short scan time. So the actual scan only takes about 10 seconds, but it does take a few minutes to position the patient and set the system up. Um, So we like this because the imaging is done in standing. So this tells us what the joints are doing in a weight-bearing position, not lying down like a lot of uh, conventional scanning. However, this means for children that have movement disorders, it can be quite challenging for them to remain still uh, while the scan is taking place. And if they move during the scan, uh, we get quite wobbly bones. Um, And as I've mentioned, for us it's really great because we can get that shape and position of the bones. However, this has meant a lot of development on our part and is still under development. So how are we using uh, this technology in our clinical and research applications? So I'm going to tell you about one of the studies uh, that I've been conducting, which we looked at a group of children that had idiopathic lower limb torsional deformities. So idiopathic, we don't know the uh, cause of these deformities, And lower limb torsional deformities is where there's an abnormal amount of twisting in the bones of the legs. So this affects the alignment of the bones. And the most notable thing you'll see in this video is that this child's knees face quite inwards as they walk. So the question is, is this purely a cosmetic issue or is there more to this? So we think there's probably a bit more to it. A lot of these patients present with hip and knee pain, and in some cases, joint instability. Uh, some of them may have dislocation of their kneecaps. It also leads to possibly in during gait, which can increase uh, their chances of tripping and falling, and this might mean that they then choose not to participate in sporting and school activities. So what can we do for these children? Well, the standard approach is that they would undergo a 3D gait analysis to look at their function, and they would have medical imaging, often a CT scan, to look at the shape of their bones. And then this information is put together and they decide whether or not surgical correction would be beneficial. However, this is not a light decision as surgical correction is quite a major operation where the bone is cut right through, rotated, and then attached back together. So you can imagine there's considerable rehabilitation involved in this too. So what we did is we took a group of 12 children, and for each of them they underwent a 3D gait analysis and the EOS imaging. And this allowed us to create personalised musculoskeletal models for each of these patients. So what was this able to tell us? We found in this group of children that during walking they were experienced increased force at their hip joint and also increased lateral force at their knee or the patellofemoral joint. And interestingly, this increase in force was correlated with patient reports of pain. So it may explain why we see that. And this lateral force that we see at the patellofemoral joint may also explain why in some cases these children experience dislocation of their kneecap.
0: Next we hear from Melissa Louie, a biomedical engineer at the Gate Lab and a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne. She researches the development of innovative tools to assess upper limb movement in children with cerebral palsy.
3: My research is going to focus on using inertial measurement units. And inertial measurement units are these small devices, which are the orange boxes, um, that can discern their orientation in space. It does this by um, collecting information from three different types of sensors, magnetometers, gyroscopes, and accelerometers. Now, gyroscopes measure angular velocity, or how fast something is spinning around a particular axis. And typically, in inertial measurement units, um, there are three gyroscopes. And so if we placed an inertial measurement unit on someone's head, we'd be able to tell how fast they were nodding or how fast they were tilting from side to side or how fast they were looking from left to right. But we're not really interested in the speed of these movements. We're all interested in how far they've moved from left to right or up and down. And so to get from angular velocity, we apply a mathematical process called integration to get the position data. But this process of integrating our data uh, introduces an error um, or drift. And so instead of the IMU thinking that the head is looking straight ahead, it might start looking to the left or it might start looking up and so on and so forth. And so this is where the other um, sensors come in. Accelerometers measure acceleration. And so with this, we can tell which way gravity is um, working in. And so with the idea that gravity is working in the up and down um, axes, we can correct for any problems of this head um, nodding up and down in the wrong direction or tilting from side to side. Similarly, magnetometers are like compasses, and they detect where where magnetic north is within a magnetic field. And so, with this information, we can make sure that our head isn't drifting from left to right erroneously. Um, And so, this process of combining these, uh, these signals from the different components is called sensor fusion. And this plays a really important role in increasing the accuracy of our orientation data. So, the great thing about inertial measurement units is that they are really small, they're quite lightweight. They're cheap to acquire, and they're highly mobile. So in comparison to our conventional motion analysis, we can use this technology in the sporting field or in our clinical rooms. But the problems with inertial measurement units is that their accuracy has been shown to be not quite as good as the conventional motion analysis laboratories. And as a result, they're still under development in improving um, their algorithms. Nevertheless, they are performing well enough for them to be seen in uh, like the sporting fields and also uh, they're starting to be translated into clinical practice. And so one of the applications that I'm really interested in is using inertial measurement units to help clinicians detect, differentiate, and grade the severity of dyskinesia in children with cerebral palsy. So cerebral palsy presents in, um, in very different ways and they're subdivided into different categories based on their movement disorders. So there are three main movement disorders. There's spasticity, dyskinesia, and ataxia. And each of these movement disorders present quite uniquely, and as a result, clinicians need to um, differentiate between them to ensure that the correct treatment is applied, um, but also to be able to grade the severity of them uh, correctly so that we can evaluate the treatment options. Now, I'm really interested in dyskinesia. And so clinicians at the moment typically grade the severity of dyskinesia through the use of clinical tools. Clinical tools typically have a protocol associated to them so that the clinicians perform the assessment in a uniform way. They ask the clinician to make a set of clinical observations, and then based on those observations, they quantify what they see using a questionnaire-type form. So the two main clinical tools that are used to grade the severity of dyskinesia in children with cerebral palsy are the barriorbrite dystonia scale and the dyskinesia impairment scale. So to kind of put this into perspective um, of this process of using clinical tools and the accuracy of using these clinical tools, I want to present to you a very similar but relatable problem. So let's assume that we only have clinical tools to grade Homer's weight.
0: Yes, Melissa is referring to Homer Simpson. And as you might remember, Dr. Hibbert is the cartoon doctor to our cartoon subject. It's not clear whether Homer has consented to being discussed for this study.
3: So Dr. Hibbert would only be able to make observations on his body shape and the amount of jiggle he has. And so uh, the process of quantifying this would give Homer a weight score of 7 out of (laughs) 8. Now, let's just take this analogy one step further. And um, Dr. Hibbert has prescribed Homer some exercise regime. And Homer goes away, does his exercise, comes back three months later for a reassessment. And he goes, Dr. Hibbert, I feel so much lighter. Thanks for the treatment. It's been awesome. But you do your clinical tool again on his weight score, and you get the same score of seven out of eight. And so, questions like, Did Homer complete his treatment correctly? Should we intensify his exercise regime? Should we try a different treatment option like diet? Or is the way that we're measuring Homer's weight uh, sensitive and accurate enough? And so these types of questions um, are a very typical scenario for clinicians trying to assess and evaluate treatment options for kids with dyskinesia. And so is there a better way? We know for Homer that he, we can just get home to step on a set of scales. And so the equivalent question is, what is the set of scales for uh, quantifying dyskinesia in children with cerebral palsy? The literature has shown um, a particular experiment by Gordon and colleagues where they got participants with cerebral palsy to start from an initial position and reach for a ball. And what they found that the, um, was that... Children with high levels, sorry, low levels of dystonia were able to reach for the ball in a highly repeatable um, fashion. Further, those with high levels of dystonia um, showed a lot of variability in their trajectories from start to finish. They also got their participants with cerebral palsy to make a pincer grip with one of their arms, but they weren't interested in what what was happening in that arm. They instead measured what was occurring in the contralateral arm. And so each of these lines represents the joint angles at the shoulder, elbow and wrist. And those with low levels of dystonia had flat lines, meaning they had no excessive movement in their contralateral arm or kinematic overflow as they were making their pincer grip. In contrast, those with high levels of dystonia have really squiggly lines, which means that they were moving their elbow and their shoulder whilst they were making a pincer grip. And so these two ways of measuring the variability of the trajectory and the kinematic overflow have shown really promising ways that we can quantify movement disorders um, to detect the difference between spasticity and dyskinesia and grade its severity. But... This has only been done in um, using a conventional motion analysis lab. And so as a result, even though it is such a promising way of quantifying movement disorders, it stayed in the research space. And so this is where our inertial measurement units come in. So the study that I am beginning is uh, looking at sort of replicating those types of movements, but instead... Of focusing on the kinematic modelling, we've got these inertial measurement units um, on their forearm and arm, like those black boxes. And so the idea is that we would use these inertial measurement units to um, calculate the same kind of joint angles um, as the full motion analysis lab. And so the hope is, is that clinicians will be able to apply a couple of these inertial measurement units, get the child to do a whole lot of series of movements and based on inertial measurement units, be able to detect, differentiate and grade the severity of dyskinesia in children with cerebral palsy.
0: We now enter the world of spatial temporal parameters using the same technology we've been hearing about. This is Dr. Claudine Kran. Claudine is an NHMRC early career researcher at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute.
4: Today I'm talking about a wireless gate analysis system the sensors are quite small, about the size of a twenty-cent piece. For spatial-temporal analysis, you would get two and you put them on the feet. So the ones that we own are from a company called Gate Up, and so you put the sensors inside a little clip. It attaches to the top of the shoe or it, or on the side of the shoe. Anywhere below the ankle is fine. It will calibrate, and the soft the the data is analysed using software on a USB stick. The it's based on of uh, The the hardware has pretty much already been explained, but just in addition, they're waterproof and dust-resistant, automatic alignment and calibration, and importantly, there is a function for remote control start-stop. So we use an iPad, but you can also use a phone, which is very useful. Um, Wireless sync, so you can get more more than one physiolog sensor and put them on different parts of the body for 3D analysis, but most of the work has been about spatiotemporal and they're customisable. So if you don't know what spatial temporal data is, it's looking at things like stride length, stride velocity, cadence, that sort of thing, so the spatial and the temporal aspects of stepping. But this system also provides some extra features, such as loading, foot flat and pushing um, percentages, the angle of the foot at the strike and the lift-off, 3D path, angles of turning and heel and toe clearance, which can also be quite useful. The output is uh, there's various different options. You can get a big Excel file with lots of data. You can then analyse that on the web through a freely available um, research toolkit provided by the the company or MATLAB. Um, But what's interesting about this company is that they also provide a very, very user-friendly clinician's gait analysis report, which the clinician can access uh, in the at, at the end of the walk in the appointment, so very quickly, and then that can help them with feedback to the patient um, very quickly. So pros and cons: uh, it is obviously it's versatile. So this means you can capture spatiotemporal components of gait in a long walk. Um, you can use it outside the lab and with other devices like walkers um, and treadmill even. Extra, metr- extra metrics are useful, it's not, they are not obtrusive, which is important for uh, our group working with rare disorders, which can be difficult and often have intellectual disability, um, as these children aren't, would not cope very well with stickers on the body, so we need something else. Uh, normative data does exist, but only for adults. When I say the company is high performing, I mean that they are doing really well, they also uh, have algorithms for running activity monitoring and skiing. And um, uh, from what I can see on the internet, they've recently been purchased by um, a virtual reality, uh, a company doing virtual reality for neuro rehab. So they are growing. The device and the output is scalable and easy to use in routine clinical practice. It's been validated in cerebral palsy and a number of other neurological populations. The cons, there are four main ones that I could think of. There may be more. It involve post-processing if you're dealing with the raw data. So this is the Excel file I was talking about. But you don't have that problem if you're getting the clinician's report. Normative data for children does not yet exist. Um, I put severe motor impairment there with the question mark because uh, I think that's with the more severe cases, there are some queries and also some queries about toe walking but they seem to be overcome by placing the sensors on the thighs or the shanks instead of the feet. And also there is assumed controlled data collection. So just quickly some clinical applications. And there's the, on the right, left, sorry, you can see the kit that it comes in. So it's very, very user friendly. Excellent for research, excellent for clinical practice. Um, The types of You can grade, obviously you can grade gait impairment, so you can use this with the instrumented timed up-and-go task, and that's been validated. You can use it on a figure-of-eight walk, a straight walk, with turns, with obstacles, and with and without dual tasks. The clinician report I described earlier makes it very useful for aiding in clinical decision-making in the appointment, um, which is helpful for adopting therapies to individual needs and also for assessing recovery. It shows excellent potential to be used as an outcome measure in clinical trials in the future, Um, and that's not just uh, neurophysiological treatments but also pharmacological treatments in some certain disorders. And the future, I think, with this is also a fusion with other medical measures such as smart home technology, looking at things like false detection, false risk, virtual reality, and probably
0: heart and respiratory rate. Claudine was also able to share a case study. Our problem is
4: that due to cognitive dysfunction in individuals with neurodevelopmental disorders, it's sometimes difficult to measure any aspect of behaviour objectively. IQ tests aren't always appropriate, they hit the floor, and sometimes they can't follow instructions. So, our question was can we develop gait analysis protocols? For understanding cognitive and neurological functioning in children with fragile X syndrome, which is the most common known cause of intellectual disability in autism. Our method, just quickly, so we had 15 controls and 12 with uh, fragile X related disorders. The controls IQ control IQ was normal, whereas the fragile X IQ range was much broader, and including five that had intellectual disability. Or IQ less than 70. So our protocol was just to walk 16 meters, take a turn around a pole and walk 16 meters back. We did that as a baseline, and then we also added on dual tasks to look at cognitive motor interference to gait, two specific spatial-temporal parameters of gait. So we did this with the verbal fluency task, so that's walking and naming animals. We did a balance task, so that's walking and carrying a tray. There were two versions and we determined what was appropriate for the child prior to the gait assessment. So the hard one is balancing one ball in the middle and the easy version is just carrying seven balls on the plate. The high lip was selected for, to prevent the balls falling off. Um, and then another task we looked at was walking and finger tapping. So that's in a sequence all the way through and repeating whereas the easier one was just finger to thumb. We collected baseline data from all the participants, including those with intellectual disabilities, so they could follow this at least that protocol. Um, only one child couldn't complete the dual-task protocols, and this was a 15-year-old male. He also couldn't complete the IQ test, um, and he was just too impaired to understand the protocol. But at the same time, another seven-year-old male who also couldn't complete the IQ test properly was able to understand and complete all of the dual-task protocols. So some pilot results. We have looked at correlation between what we think are core measures of the Fragile X phenotype, such as autistic features and IQ, and correlated them with um, results that we got from the gait experiments. So here, figure A and B is just baseline walking, on the x-axis is stance time, so that's the percentage of the gait cycle in which each leg is on the ground, and we find that a lower stance time is correlated with a lower IQ and higher autistic features. We also looked at um, some, the dual task cost, so that's the change in the, this, so figure C is stride length, so that's the change in, the, um, in, the, in stride length between baseline and walking while finger tapping. And we find that those having the greatest change, so shortening their stride length the most, are also having the highest autistic features, according to our, our data. So the main part of this study was feasibility, and we show that yes, they're tolerated by children with fragile X syndrome, including those with intellectual disability. And this suggests that possibly gate results, both baseline and dual tasks, they may be useful uh, as a proxy for phenotype severity in cases that are too severe for other assessments, and also results may be useful for longitudinal work and drug trials where other tests can't be repeated. There is something special about gait analysis um, that other, and, and movement analysis really, that some of the other scales don't have.
0: Now, Rachel Kennedy tells us about electronic walkwear or pressure mats. Rachel is a PhD candidate and senior clinician physiotherapist at the Royal Children's Hospital.
5: I have been using the uh, GateRight electronic walkway um, in my studies and in our research in the um, neuromuscular clinic here at the Children's. The GateWright is an electronic walkway, um, approximately five metres long, with over 16,000 pressure-activated sensors embedded into it. And as the child walks across the mat, these sensors are individually activated. The information is then fed by USB um, cable to a laptop computer, and the right algorithms, um, software algorithms, group the sensors to form um, footprints. And from this, we can measure um, several spatial-temporal measures that are calculated. GateRide is a valid and reliable measure of spatial-temporal measures in both typically developing children and children with motor impairments. And it provides us with individual step data, including the spatial-temporal measures such as speed, step length, cadence, step length, step width, um, and timing measures. But from it, we can also calculate step-to-step variability. The GateRite can be used to measure the effect of dual tasking on gait, and um, the example I use there is actually the Vibes team at MCRI are using the GateRite mat, and they're using cognitive tests similar to what Claudine just described earlier um, to collect information about gait in pre, um, ex-preterm four-year-olds. Um, the gait is also very portable um, and easy to roll out in a flat space um, anywhere, indoors or outdoors, um, we use it indoors, and to set it up with the laptop only takes a couple of minutes. So it's relatively easy to use, and you don't need any formal training to use it. Some of the downsides of the gate right is that you are limited to a flat surface, and you need at least about ten meters of length to use it. Um, it only gives us spatial temporal data, and um, its relative cost at over thirty thousand dollars it is expensive, but um, compared to a, a Full gate laboratory. I guess it's not that expensive. Um, yeah. So some of the measures that we um, get from the gate, right? As I said before, with speed, cadence, stride um, and step time, stance and swing time, double and single support time and timing of foot contact as the foot comes into contact with the mat. And we also get step and stride length, base of support width, um, which is measured in a variety of ways, but we use heel-to-heel base of support width in our, in our studies, and the calculation of step-to-step variability. So, um, we use two protocols in our neuromuscular clinic and in our research. One is an intermittent protocol where the children walk up and down the mat. At, um, in one protocol, it's at self-selected speed and in another protocol, it's fast walking. And we collect a minimum of six trials and this has been shown to give us a, approximately 30 steps per, um, per child, which is um, provides enough data for it to be valid and reliable. We also use the gate right mat in a continuous protocol where we place it within a six minute walk test um, circuit and um, collect data as the child walks uh, for the six minutes. And uh, we take that, that each of those laps and group them into minute epochs to um, then calculate the um, information that we need just before I go any further, I guess with my PhD studies, um, the focus was in a group of children with Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease. And for those that don't know about this, briefly, it's an inherited peripheral neuropathy. And these children have distal weakness of their foot and ankle, which leads to deformity and ankle instability and problems with gait and balance, which is what I'm interested in. Um, In a systematic review that we conducted of um, gait in children with CMT, we found that there were really very few studies. Um, the studies that had been um, had been um, already published showed that gait was slower, which we kind of knew, possibly due to reduced stride length, and these children possibly had wider base of support. But that was pretty much the sum total of the information that um, these studies had given us so far. So that led to um, the development of um, my studies. And one of those studies was um, a cross sectional case controlled study of gait and footwear in children with CMT. And this was done at self selected speed. And we found that the children walk slower with a shorter step length, their base is wider, and um, of I guess one of the new findings was this increased step-to-step variability that we found. And we found a, re- a really nice moderate association between that um, increased step-to-step variability and their reduced balance when we tested them on the um, BOT scale, or the, the Brunix or Saretsky test of balance. Um, we also found when we were looking at their footwear um, for all children, that gait was slower in suboptimal footwear and suboptimal with things like Um, crocs and thongs and slip-on footwear, and that when children wore optimal footwear, which is like their sneakers and their school shoes, they actually walked faster, which has clinical implications for the children who have weak feet, obviously. Then we also looked at measurement of gait during the six-minute walk test, which was a fast walking test, and naturally gait was slower in the children with CMT compared to their typically developing controls, and um, resulted in an overall reduced six-minute walk distance. We also really, uh, this is where we looked at the, um, the timing of foot contact, and we looked at um, the timing between heel-on and midfoot on timing, and that was faster in the children with um, CMT, which to us was indicative of that control of the foot as it was loading, and indicative of their weak dorsiflexor muscles. So that was really nice to see in those children. Well, not nice, but it was nice to show that what we thought we was happening was happening. Um, we also found quite a lot of variability in their um, gait in the children with CMT, and there were moderate to large correlations between that gait variability and both the reduced six-minute walk distance and also increased perceived exertion that they reported on an omni-scale for us. Um, so in summary, the um, gait right is is portable. Um, it gives us a very nice spatiotemporal gait analysis that we use both in that research and in the neuromuscular clinic. It gives us some nice clinically interpretable gait with relative ease. And gait speed is a pretty important um, biomechanic, uh, um, biomarker of disease and function and has been shown that in a number of other studies. And we think the gait right is enabling us to... Um, to measure this quite accurately in our um, in our clinic and in our cohort of children, it's also giving us this lovely step to step variability data that we're showing some nice um, associations and insights with in regard to um, balance and gait dysfunction, and that's going to and that leads on to us thinking about falls in these children as well, and that's um, under further investigation. And finally, I think the gate right is allowing us to collect some really nice longitudinal data in our neuromuscular clinic where um, most of the ambulant children are now enrolled in an ongoing study where we uh, assess them annually. So we are kind of excited about how it has enabled us to do our research.
0: Thank you for listening to the Center of Research Excellence in Cerebral Palsy podcast. To make sure you don't miss episodes of this podcast, make sure you subscribe using your favorite podcast app. And if this is your first time listening, check back through our catalog. There's loads of great stuff waiting for you in our podcast feed. To find out more about our CRE, head to CRECP.org.au.